from Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical. In our podcast, we peek under the hood of the machine of public policy to see how things work. This week, host Aidan Dowd interviews Trade Ambassador C.J. Mahoney on his role in the USMCA trade negotiations. Without further ado, here's our show. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. My name is Aiden Dowd, and I'm one of your Academical Podcast co-hosts. I'm a first-year MPP student at Batten. Um, we're going to be talking about everything international trade policy. So Ambassador Mahoney is the former Deputy United States Trade Representative for Investment, Services, Labor, Environment, Africa, and the Western Hemisphere. He then went on to clerk for Justice Kennedy in the Supreme Court, and then as worked as an attorney for Williams and Connolly, Williams and Connolly, a firm in D.C., and as a lecturer at Yale Law. Uh, most recently at USTR, he was the lead negotiator for the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, USMCA, uh, the, deal that re- the trade deal that replaced NAFTA, and actually passed overwhelmingly in the House of Representatives by a vote of 385 to 41, and the Senate by a vote of 89 to 10. So without further ado, joining me now, Ambassador C.J. Mahoney. All right, Ambassador Mahoney, I'm so glad you're here. You're the perfect person to discuss these topics with, and I can't thank you enough for joining us on Academical. Well, thanks so much, Aiden. Really glad to be here. Yeah, so tell us a bit about your experiences in USTR. What was it like to serve as the representative of the U.S. government and basically be involved in these high-level conversations and trade negotiations? It was a fantastic experience. I, I came to the job not having... Uh, first-hand experience with international trade. Uh, I was actually, um, you know, so selected for the job kind of on these opportunities come at, come about by, by happenstance. I had a, uh, a mutual friend who was, uh, who was good friends with Ambassador Lighthizer. We were put in touch after Ambassador Lighthizer uh, was nominated. Uh, Bob's view was that um, it was important to staff USTR with good lawyers and he was less concerned about the substance. He thought if, uh, if he hired people who had good negotiating skills and good legal skills, that the substance uh, w- w- was something that, that, that he could teach uh, or that could be learned. And you know, hopefully, in my case, that, uh, that worked out. And um, I, I came into USTR um, without, frankly, without a lot of strong views on these issues, um, really just wanting to have the opportunity to serve. And it was a very, um, very active, some would say turbulent time in, uh, uh, in, in U.S. trade policy with regard to China, the renegotiation of NAFTA, as well as a number of smaller deals that didn't get as much attention. But I, I think we're, um, we're very good for the United States, opened up market access for, uh, for, for farmers and uh, manufacturers and other businesses in the U.S. And so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of my service. Yeah. What were some of those smaller trade deals, just since, you know, this is a, a good you know, good outlet for people that, honest, that honestly don't hear a lot about these smaller things because trade policy isn't, you know, such a glamorous, sexy topic as many others. Well, I, I'm glad you asked that because aside from USMCA and the deal with China were certainly the headline accomplishments of the, the Lighthizer USTR, but there were a number of other deals as well that, that were really pretty significant. We did a deal with Japan that standing alone would be probably one of the most important trade agreements that the U.S. has done in the last decade. It basically secured for the U.S. most of the agricultural access that we would have if we had a proper free trade agreement with Japan, and also included a first-class digital trade uh, agreement that has very high standards and puts the U.S. and Japan on the same page on uh, on, on digital economy-related issues. We did a, a, a small deal, but an important deal with the European Union, where we got the EU to eliminate its tariff on lobsters, 
which was uh, something which was that was really important to uh, to lobster men in Maine who had seen a lot of their market in the EU um, be lost to Canadian lobstermen after Canada did a free trade agreement with the EU, and so it turned out that. You know, these fisher, these lobstermen who fish in the same waters, the Canadians had an advantage because they didn't have to, uh, uh, their uh, exports didn't pay a, a tariff, which was, you know, something of a, something in the, in the range of mid double digits. So it was a, um, uh, an important thing. It was also, we actually did reciprocal tariff reductions on our side, but, you know, at the end of the day, working with allies, making progress on trade really requires substantive changes. And, you know, what we did with Japan, Korea, the EU, um, you know, did result in in, in substantive changes to uh, to the trade regime. I think in ways that are good for the United States and confidence building in terms of uh, of, of all of those relationships going forward. Yeah. So I, I noticed that you mentioned um, specifically the automobile and then digital industries, I, and then I noticed also we'll talk about NAFTA and USMCA in a minute. But that was a common. Um, like a recurring theme between all these deals that those industries needed some reform. Did you like feel that was the case coming into it that, you know, those were sectors to focus on? I think the auto industry is just absolutely critical for the United States. It's not only an iconic American industry. I think it's one that drives a lot of um, a, a lot of economic activity. It supports a lot of, of uh, for something like for every man, every line manufacturing job, there are three or four, I think, you know, some people would say upwards of, of 10 additional jobs that are created in the supply chain. And so I think it's really important that the U.S. maintain a, uh, a vibrant auto industry. Every trade agreement has uh, certain rules that say that for manufactured goods, a certain percentage of the content have to be manufactured within the region. When we got to a point where Mexico really was an assembly platform for um, auto manufacturers in Europe and Asia, um, who uh, don't give the United States reciprocal market access. Um, it was an assembly platform for them to be able to get their vehicles into the United States duty-free. So I, I think it was an important thing that we did. And, you know, it, it's a problem now. It would be an even bigger problem in the future because the, the way that NAFTA's rules were set up, NAFTA was an agreement that was negotiated in the early 1990s. So you know, cars in the early 1990s were the reference point for those rules. And now as, as cars have changed, and especially as we're on the threshold of um, big advances in new energy vehicles and autonomous vehicles. It was important that those rules be reformed and adapted um, so that they serve the needs not only of the United States, but I think of the entire integrated North American supply chain in the future. So I, I, I was very proud of that. I think that that was, uh, that was a, I think, a really important reform. So what are your thoughts generally on the like early NAFTA, like um, the original NAFTA in the early 90s? What did you think it did well? What did it do wrong? Um, and then what did UMCA change about it that you think was really important? I think that the differences between USMCA and NAFTA are, you know, every bit as big, if not bigger, than the difference between a car that was manufactured in, you know, in 1994 and a uh, um, and a Tesla. Both are, are cars. They both sort of fit in the same category at its most basic level. What it does is to have um, uh, mostly duty-free trade between uh, the three countries, but every provision of it was upgraded significantly. And you know, in some of these areas, there were um, there were things that were done that that were that. Uh, uh, where we started with just, I think, very, very different goals. Um, the auto rules of origin being, uh, you know, being the most important, uh, being the most important one. We wanted to come up with a set of rules that would rebalance the auto trade in North America, encourage more jobs, not only in the region, but specifically in the United States. In addition to having this tighter rules of origin and higher regional content requirements, we also had a provision that says that 40% of a car and 45% of a truck have to be made by workers who make at least $16 an hour. 
And so that's something that's going to encourage more investment in, in the United States. And again, it's something that just sort of puts a floor on wage competition, um, which, which I think is a reasonable thing to do. I mean, you know, there are some people who say, well, that's managed trade and you're, you know, interfering with, with the hidden hand. Um, but, uh, the, but the, um, you know, labor conditions in Mexico generally don't have anything to do with um, with with Adam Smith. They really have to do with you know a political situation and down there that, that that needed reforming. And over the years, that's one of the things that has resulted in, in wages that are artificially low. So having a mechanism that encourages um, uh, that, that discourages competition on something like wages, I think is uh, I think is really important. The other thing that we had is a, is a is a sunset provision in the agreement, um, which um, you know I, I think ultimately is going to be something that helps to keep this relationship uh, between Mexico and Canada and the United States strong and refreshed. Because what it says is that there's a term on the agreement of 16 years, um, but that um, every six years there will be a review to determine whether to extend the agreement out for another 16 years. And so what that means is that um, you have a you'll have an opportunity to make some of the revisions that, frankly, I think the, I think we should have made to the original NAFTA um, well before the Trump administration. A lot of progressive lawmakers or interest groups in the United States um, have said in the past that UMCA did not do enough. What is your response to that? Do you do you think it did enough? This is the only trade agreement that received the endorsement of um, the steelworkers, the AFL-CIO, the Teamsters. You can't turn uh, turn the situation in Mexico around uh, overnight, um, and you know there are certain things. I mean, Mexico is will remain remains a sovereign country. It needs to regulate um, these issues in its own way. What would you say you're most proud of um, with your time at US and USTR, and what were some things you would have done differently as well? By far, the thing I'm, I'm most I'm, I'm most proud of is USMCA. I'm proud not only with the agreement that we're able to strike, but probably even. You know, more, more so than even the substance of the agreement. I'm really proud, proud that we were able to get strong bipartisan support for the agreement in Congress. And you know, we did that the year before a presidential election in a time that was um, you know, otherwise very fraught. Um, I, I think that, the, um, that the, the Trump administration deserves credit for USMCA. I think it deserves credit for um, changing the conversation uh, about trade with, uh, with, with China and uh, um, forcing the country to recognize that you know the relationship had changed; it was different than it was uh, in uh, uh, certainly after that. In some of the hopes that people had about China when China joined the WTO, weren't fulfilled exactly. China has an economy which is um, you know driven in large part it's by the state. There's a lot of you know, dynamic capitalism there as well, um, but uh, but it's uh, but it's supported by uh, by state subsidies and uh, and and some you know, barriers to trade that make it difficult for other countries to um, to have as much market access into China as China has into other countries, and it results in in big macroeconomic distortions. You know, my own preferred policy is one that focuses less on trying to change China and more on trying to make the U.S. more competitive. Um, but I, I certainly don't want an adversarial relationship with China. But I think that you know the assumptions that underlay the relationship that we have with China before 2017 um, were needed to be reevaluated, and we need to have a we need to have a new relationship going forward. Yeah, it doesn't mean that we need to um, be in an adversarial relationship, but it does mean that the U.S. needs to you know recalibrate um, the policies that we have and 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 what we want out of the relationship. Thanks for uh, engaging with all these pretty deep questions and you know really substantive <laughs> things about politics, trade, all of that good stuff that um, everybody hopefully learned a lot about. Um, I also have a few more interesting, fun questions. Um, sure, sure. Just to, you know, 
talk about something different. So uh, what's something about the life and job of a trade representative or a diplomat like yourself that most people don't know? I think you really, you know, you find yourself really being as much of a mediator as you do a negotiator, because there are a lot of just different interests that you have to accommodate. You know, we were thinking about how's the Congress going to react to this? How's the labor community going to react to it as a business community? And then the foreign country you're, you're negotiating with. So it's really about kind of trying to come up with a solution that works for everybody, as opposed to just trying to get your own, uh, you know, pr- pursue your own, uh, um, your own policy preferences. Um, it's a, um, it is though, it's, it, it's also a job that is a lot of fun in that um, you work with really, really great people and the, the, the people at USTR, the career staff in particular were, were fantastic. I can only hope that everybody has the opportunity to work with, work with somebody um, and work under somebody like Ambassador Lighthizer, who, you know, for me was just an absolute, you know, in, inspiration, not only in, um, you know, in how he conducted himself professionally, but also in his, in his personal life and in his, uh, in, in his personal values and how he treated people. Um, I mean, he's just, you know, there's just, it, it just doesn't get any better in, uh, in, uh, in my book. And, um, and, and those things are, um, you know, when you're dealing with people in, um, you know, stressful situations where a lot's at stake, I think you really, you know, you really learn about somebody's character and, you know, those are, those are great experiences to have. And if, even if they do uh, take a few years off your life. What would you say is an important leadership lesson that, I don't know, Ambassador Lighthizer or somebody um, that you've worked with has taught you? It's really important to listen. A lot of people who are, you know, hard charging and, um, you know, get to these positions, get to them because they are confident in expressing their opinion and like to hear them, like to hear themselves speak. Yeah. But you really <laughs> learn a lot more and you can make better decisions. You actually sit back and listen and, and really kind of sit back and try to figure out, you know, what is it that's really motivating this person? What is their, what is their bottom line? Another way to express that is that, you know, empathy, I think it's just, it's just really, really important. If you have the ability to kind of step back and reflect on those things, I think you can make better decisions. I think you can make more progress. And so, um, you know, that's something and it's hard to do, especially in the heat of the moment. Sometimes, you know, emotion things can get very, uh, uh, you know, very emotional and, and, and temperatures can be raised. But if you can step back and do that, I think you'll I think you'll be more effective. And I think that's a, a really important and perhaps underappreciated quality in, in a good leader. Many thanks to Ambassador CJ Mahoney for speaking with us about USMCA. If you have any questions, comments or guest suggestions, you can email them to us at virginiapolicyreview at gmail.com. See you next time.